0: Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of
1: all. We'll now be reading from God's Word. We'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 49. Uh, so if you could open up your Bibles, that would be great. So I'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 49, starting from verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He hid my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have laboured in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes and they shall prostrate themselves, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favour I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the way, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people, and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you behold i have engraved you on the palms of my hand your walls are continually before me your builders make haste your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you lift up your eyes around and see they all gather they come to you as i live declares the lord you shall put them all on as an ornament you shall bind them on as a bride does surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants And those who swallowed you up will be far away the children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears the place is too narrow for me make room for me to dwell in then you will say in your heart who has borne me these i was bereaved and barren exiled and put away but who has brought up these behold i was left alone from where have these come thus says the lord god behold i will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples And they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you, and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Saviour, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Well, good afternoon, friends. My name is Tim. If we haven't met, I'm one of
0: the pastors with Campus Bible say. And it's been great to have Josh and Tony over the last couple of weeks teaching us from Isaiah and about prophecy. Uh, it's great that I can join you again and we're going to work through the last, well, 20-odd chapters of Isaiah uh, over the next three weeks. Not all today, uh, over the last three weeks of term. Let's pray and ask for God's help uh, and let's jump into Isaiah 49. Our great God, thank you for the freedom we have to gather as your people. Thank you for the privilege we have of hearing you speak through your Word. Father, we pray today that at the end of term, uh, in the midst of tiredness and busyness, that you would help us to put other distractions aside that we may know you better and live in a way that is pleasing to your sight. father we ask this for jesus sake amen well one of our family joys at the moment is to spend saturday mornings down by the soccer fields my kids are still quite young and so a soccer field is kind of a normal soccer field divided up into eight and these small segments have little groups of four people chasing a ball around uh, just last Saturday, we turned up at the soccer field, uh, I took my son over to warm up with his team, warm up, we used the term loosely, uh, and my wife took my daughter over to the playground beforehand. Uh, as they walked across for the start of the game, uh, my daughter turned aside and stopped at a different soccer field. Uh, maybe she thought she saw someone she recognised, uh, maybe she went to the field where we were playing last week, uh, but either way, she found herself all alone she looked up and looked around, she saw a bunch of unfamiliar faces. She started to well up. She was terrified and filled with fear that she'd been abandoned, lost, forgotten. My wife turned up at the right field and looked behind her and my daughter wasn't there, so she walked back across and found her. She was probably lost for all of 20 or 30 seconds. But as soon as my daughter saw my wife, she ran forward with tears streaming down her face she didn't say anything, she wasn't really sure what to say, but she gave one of those long, firm hugs that communicated all those things her words couldn't say. I'm not sure if you've had a similar experience, maybe not recently like that, but maybe when you are younger, uh, of being lost. In a shopping centre, forgotten at school, left behind by your family, I'm sure by mistake. Uh, it's a pretty odd. <laughs> it's a pretty bad feeling. Uh, Our minds can go to dark places when we are left behind, forgotten, abandoned. Uh, But perhaps more recently and uh, maybe more seriously, uh, loneliness is a big deal in our world and in Australia and amongst young people at the moment. Uh, More and more surveys are being done and studies are showing that we are struggling with connection. Uh, Some say social media, some say it's the impact of the pandemic, some say it's just the shifting social patterns, but more and more people are lonely. Uh, We feel alone and that's a big deal because according to this study, you've got a 26% greater risk of premature mortality. That means you're going to die sooner. You've got more than a a 58% chance of higher risk of developing dementia. Loneliness is as bad as smoking and it's worse than obesity. And it increases the odds of having clinically diagnosed mental disorder. It is not good for you. And the studies also seem to suggest that people your age are more likely to suffer from or struggle with this loneliness and this isolation. 18 to 24-year-olds are the group that feels this most strongly. So perhaps this isn't an academic or a, a childhood memory. Feeling alone may be your present reality. Or if not yours... Likely something that those in your classes, those that you sit and study and relax alongside, are feeling. But to change the question slightly, do you ever feel alone—not physically and relationally, but spiritually? Now you may be here as an atheist, confident that there is no God and no spiritual world. You may feel proud of your aloneness. You may also feel some of the emptiness that just living in a random materialistic world brings. Maybe you're religious. You believe in a God or many gods, but that divine being is somehow distant or detached that you don't feel you have a personal relationship with. Is there hope of knowing and intimately connecting with a God at all? Some of you are probably here as Christians and you are feeling alone, distant, cut off from God, perhaps through suffering. Perhaps through prayers that you offer, not feeling like they're being answered. Perhaps through a difficult experience with church or Christian community. Do you feel isolated, cut off from people or from God? And what do you do with these feelings? I'm not sure if you noticed in the middle of our reading in chapter 49 and verse 14, God's people are feeling alone in this chapter. Uh, personified with the name of Zion, that's the mountain on which Jerusalem, the capital, uh, was built upon, their complaint to God is, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Why did Israel feel this? Uh, If you recall our context, Isaiah is prophesying, he's speaking to God's people in the second half of the 8th century B.C., During this time in 722 BC, the northern ten tribes of Israel had been conquered by Assyria, carried off, new people settled there. Then in 701 BC, the Assyrians marched all the way down, conquering the fortified cities of of Judah, and they came right up to the very walls of Jerusalem. That's what we read about in chapters 36 and 37. God's people were alone and under attack. Now, God delivered them from the hand of the Assyrians. But God also warned that the remnant of His people were one day going to be conquered and exiled by the Babylonians. Now, history showed that that would come to pass in 597 BC and 586 BC as Nebuchadnezzar conquered and carried off God's people. These were dark and fearful and lonely days for God's people. There were God's chosen people. Yet they were experiencing His judgment, they were afflicted, they were carried off, and they felt forsaken, abandoned, forgotten by God, at least that's what they said to God. For while it may seem a natural conclusion, God wants to go to some lengths in this chapter to show that it couldn't be further from the truth. And so in God's kindness, before this exile to Babylon even took place, God spoke these words of comfort to His people. God spoke through Uzziah, giving surprising hope so that they would trust and have a firm foundation when these dark days did come. And my prayer is that these words also give us hope for whatever trials and days we are going through. So turn back to chapter 49 and verse 1. And read with me the start of this surprising message of hope. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. These opening words, I'm not sure if you've picked it up, someone is speaking to us. We don't know who, but they make a big claim. They demand an international audience. Those living beyond the borders of Israel are commanded to pay attention and to listen to the words that follow. This person has global significance. There's someone that we need to pay attention to. It grabs our attention. But I'm not sure how you typically respond when someone tells you what to do. It's your natural instinct to resist. I won't ask for a show of hands. Uh, But at the very least, I take it when someone makes a demand of you, you want to know who they are and what right they have to make that claim. And so naturally, When someone says, the whole world, the nations around, the coasts, they better sit up and listen. You go, who is this that has the right to make this claim? This kind of authority typically is reserved for God. And so, the speaker is quick to establish his connection with God. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, He called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, He named my name. So it's not God speaking per se. But this one who cries out speaks with the authority from, of God, appointed by God, known and chosen and named even before birth. Now, this may be reminiscent of another great prophet chosen by God, uh, the prophet Jeremiah. We lost some of those, Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. We're told about his call because before God formed Jeremiah in the womb, he knew him. And before you were born, I consecrated you, I set you apart, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. If you know these words and you hear about this one who's crying out, you may think that God is appointing another prophet, another one to speak His words. And that would kind of make sense with what we see in verse 2. Because right after this we read that, God made my mouth like a sharp sword. The God-given power that this one has, comes in what He says. It's the stuff that comes out of His mouth. Though as we keep reading, the the picture shifts a little bit. The one who speaks now sounds like kind of God's secret or hidden weapon. Uh, Because in the shadow of God's hand, this one is hidden. Uh, And He made Him like a a polished arrow, but hidden away in God's quiver. So here we have one who speaks, demanding the attention of the world, He speaks with power. He speaks with divine protection. Who is this one? In verse 3, the speaker's God-given identity is revealed. God said to me, you are my servant. Now, far from being demeaning, being called the servant of the living God, it's an honor title. It's a privileged position. Uh, through Isaiah, we've seen a couple of people called God's servant. Back in Isaiah chapter 20, Isaiah himself is referred to as my servant. Uh, a few chapters later, we meet Eliakim. Now, you may not remember Eliakim, his name's a little bit less familiar. But he was the one who manages the household of King Hezekiah. He's the one who went out to talk to the Rabshakeh when Sennacherib came up in chapters 36 and 37. He's an honored one, and he is God's servant. And then chapter 37, we're told that the great King David of old, he was the servant of God. You see, to be the servant of God is a great honor for great people who are privileged to serve Him. And yet, the one we're meeting and hearing in Isaiah 49 is none of these. As verse 3 continues, we're told, The identity of God's servant is Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, in one sense, if we've been reading through Isaiah, we should have seen this coming. In the previous chapters, God has described Israel as His servant. So in Isaiah 41, we read, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the end of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. You see, there's great reason to expect that Israel would be God's servant. They've been chosen by Him to do God's work, to walk in obedience to what God has commanded. That's what servants do. But if you've been with us as we worked our way through Isaiah, if you know much about Israel at all, you know that Israel doesn't have the best track record of serving God, of obeying Him, of listening to His commands and doing them. So uh, you might have seen in Bible study this morning, uh, in Isaiah 42, Israel, as the servant, is described as one who is blind and deaf, not very good at following or obeying what God has said. And so you start to see the surprise of the announcement in Isaiah 49. There is this great servant appointed by God to speak God's words, a message the whole world needs to hear. And it's Israel, one who's not very good at listening to and obeying God. And in fact, this whole situation of Israel being under God's judgment and feeling alone and cut off is because Israel is so bad at listening to and obeying God. So is really Israel going to be the hope for Israel? Can it really be talking about the nation here? As we keep reading through Isaiah 49, there's further complications. In verse 5, God speaks about what His servant is going to do. Have a look. This servant, this great one, the Lord says... He who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. You see that the servant is the one who's going to bring Jacob back to God. The servant is the one who's going to bring Israel back to God. Does that seem strange if the nation of Israel is the one who's going to gather the nation of Israel to God? It seems perhaps a little circular, unusual, perhaps even difficult to do. How can Israel regather Israel? It seems like the servant must in some way be different from the nation of Israel. Someone who can obey where the nation rebelled. Someone who can regather where the nation walked astray. Someone who can do God's will and glorify God. It sounds like what Israel should have done. But someone who isn't the nation of Israel. So if the servant isn't the nation of Israel, why are they called Israel? Well, here's a chance for you to say hi to those around you. I know you're excited. Questions on the screen. Why do you think the servant is called Israel if he doesn't seem to be the nation of Israel? 30 seconds. Enjoy a chat. (laughs) All right, friends, let's come back together. Why is it called Israel if not Israel? Well, it seems like there's something that we need to see about the servant that has a deep connection and association with Israel, whilst being in some ways distinct from the nation. The hope of God's people is not going to come from somewhere else, somewhere outside of God's people. It's going to come from within the nation. But it must be one who can lead and rescue and regather the nation, perhaps even represent the nation as a whole. Someone who can do for God and the world what the nation was always supposed to do but has consistently failed to do. One who could perhaps even be a new foundation for God's people. Perhaps one like Jacob beforehand, whom God, you may recall, chose from the womb in chapter 25 of Genesis and then renamed Israel in Genesis 35. This is a servant that God promised that Israel hoped for that could perhaps reverse the fate of God's people. And so in Isaiah 49, as we read these prophetic words, they're being spoken to us as if the servant himself is speaking from some time in the future. You see, before this servant even took his first breath in the world God made, God's people were supposed to have met him in the pages of Scripture through the words of Isaiah. They're supposed to have heard his voice, being familiar with his character and his task. They were to know him so that they would recognize him. And so, through Isaiah, we introduce in this perhaps slightly strange, but incredibly intimate way to the voice of one who is yet to come. And so, across the second half of the book of Isaiah, we see little cameos or portraits of this servant again and again. You may be familiar with them. Uh, They're often called the servant songs, and there's four or maybe five of them, depending on how you count or what you think. Uh, The first one you might have seen in Bible study this week, it's in Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 9. It's where we introduce this character of the servant. Uh, We're looking at 49, 1 to 7 today at the Bible Talks. Uh, The next one comes in chapter 50 verses 4 to 9. Uh, Then next week in Bible study, you might look at Isaiah 52 to 53, uh, the fourth servant song. Uh, And those ones are generally agreed upon. The last one uh, doesn't explicitly mention the servant uh, in Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 3. Uh, But you can look at it in Bible study in week 10 and see if you think it fits the pattern uh, of being words expressed by the servant uh, in anticipation of his arrival. Uh, These four or five different passages, they introduce us to one who is the hope of Israel. So what does Isaiah 49 teach us about God's promised servant? Well, if you're in Bible study this morning, you may notice some similarities with Isaiah 42. As we've seen, this servant is chosen by God. He's concealed by God for a time, though the expectation is that when He's revealed, He is a sword and an arrow. He comes with power, though not violence. That power is expressed through His words, not His sword. Though interestingly, His words are described as His sword. He's going to bring salvation to Israel. He's going to regather the scattered and the exiled people of God. He's going to even turn God's people's hearts back to Him. But that is in the end of what He's come to do. Verse 6 reveals why the whole world needed to sit up and listen in verse 1. So verse 6 we read, God says, It is too light a thing that you should be My servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. That is a mighty promise for for God's people. But that's not the end of it. That's too little for this great servant to do. Because the servant is also going to be made as a light for the nations that God's salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You see, through God's servant, his salvation is going to extend beyond the borders of Israel to welcome and bless God's people from every tribe and language and nation, even all the way down here to Australia, which is surely the end of the earth. Now, as wonderful as this servant's work is, did you notice it's not going to be without opposition? In verse 7, it sounds like the servant is even going to be despised and abhorred by Israel, the ones he comes to save. He's going to be subjected to the rulers of the nations before he's able to offer them salvation. And in verse 4, the servant speaks incredibly candidly. He fears that his labor and his work is in vain and has come to nothing. But even in this, the servant continues to trust God. And so the surprising reversal comes in verse 7 where the rulers who subjugated the servant actually come and bow before Him. They will recognize His greatness and He will prevail and succeed as God has planned. And so in verse 8, when the servant comes, We're told it's going to be the time of God's favor. It's going to be the day of God's salvation. It's the birth of a new way and time for for people to relate with God. You see, God has made many promises and covenants with His people that form the foundation of how they can have confidence to draw near to God. But did you notice in verse 8, you also saw it in Isaiah 42, that the servant himself will be given as a covenant. The person of the servant will be the foundation of salvation. It will be the the foundation of having a relationship with God. And not just for Israel, that's for the whole world. Verses 9 and 10 describe how this will be time of freedom, of release, of setting prisoners free, of salvation, of provision, protection, things to rejoice in. And no longer will there be hunger or thirst or the scorching wind or the beating sun. God's people would be provided for, protected, uh, like sheep led to a cool spring. Verses 11 and 12, it's like there's highways coming into Jerusalem, coming into the, the land of God's people from the north and from the west, and even from Sain down in the south. This is bringing God's people home. It's the restoration of His nation. This is what God's going to accomplish through His servant, and it is glorious. Glorious for God's people, but not just them, it is glorious for the whole world. And so we read in verse 13, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted His people. He will have compassion on his afflicted. See, that comfort that God promised that we saw last week in Isaiah 40, well, that's being realized through God's servant. And the source and the scope of that is surprising. It comes from Israel, even though they seem far from God. And it's going to be offered to the whole world, which is a cause for great joy. And yet, as great as this message of hope is for Israel, it seemed a long way from their present experience. It seems even beyond their comprehension. Could it possibly be true? It seems they're filled with doubt as they speak the words of verse 14, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Or if you go further, if you look over to chapter 50 and verse 1, it seems like Israel felt that God had divorced His people. They used to enjoy a beautiful marriage relationship with God, but now they felt that that relationship was over. Or perhaps others are saying in verse, chapter 50 and verse 1, that God has sold His people to settle a debt with one of His creditors. They're gone. It is finished. The relationship is over. That's the conclusion that they seem to draw. God's left. He's sold up. He's moved out. He's forsaken His people. He's forgotten them. And then hearing this promise about a servant, a servant who's going to come from them somehow, who's going to restore the relationship and give hope to the nations, that's too much for them. It can't possibly be true. Perhaps you've been tempted to think the same as you hear about God's promises eternal life. A new heavens and a new earth. Jesus, the man who was crucified, claimed to have been raised back to life again and coming again one day, still in His physical human body, to bring judgment, to bring in eternity. A world with no more pain or suffering or death or sin or sickness. Do these wonderful promises of God sometimes seem too great beyond your expectation too hard to believe God hears the doubts of his people and he responds in the second half of chapter 49 with words of tender assurance and promise now look at verse 15 can a woman forget her nursing child that she could have no compassion on the son of her womb even these may forget yet i will not forget you behold i've engraved you on the palms of my hands Your walls are continually before me. You see, more certain and committed even than a nursing mother, God promises to never forget His people. Like a loving father, I'm not sure if it was ink but other engravings, God has indelibly engraved the identity of His people on His hands. He cannot forget them. He will not forget them. He will stick by them through thick and thin. In verse 19, the people are concerned when they come back to the land of Israel, the country will be vast, but they will be narrow. They will be few in number. They're going to rattle around in this big, wide land like parents whose kids have all left home. But this will be the source of great grief for Israel because all that empty space used to be filled by their parents and children, their brothers and sisters, their spouses, those they loved, taken by death taken by slavery. But God's comfort in verse 20 is that their children will return home. And more besides, like kids coming back in the holidays to the family home but bringing all of their friends with them. The land will soon be overflowing with people. They're going to complain for a lack of room. Not that it's too big. You see, God promises not just to return from exile, but to bring extras from the nations. Have a look at verse 20. The children of your bereavement yet will, will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone, but where have they come from? And the answer follows swiftly in verse 22. They've come from God. You see, just as God promised at the start of the chapter, the servant will gather God's people and He's going to extend the offer of salvation to the nations. and They too can turn from their autonomy to come and trust the true and living God. What we saw in verse 7, that kings and princes will come and bow and worship before the servant of God. Well, that's going to come to pass in verse 23 as they come with the nations to find salvation from God. Verse 22, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift my hand to the nations, I'll raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and the queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Did you notice God's assurance to His uncertain people? When God brings about what He has promised, when He gathers the people and even the nations, then they will have certainty. They will know for sure that God is the true God who does what He says. Have you notice at the end of verse 23? There's a repeat from what we saw at the end of Isaiah 40. Those who wait for the Lord will not be put to shame. To wait on the Lord is to trust in His promises. The foundational character of God's people is faith. To trust or to know or to depend or to build our lives on what God has said because He does it. We can be certain of that. And as we see God fulfilling His promises, we have great confidence. As the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith, not by sight. And that's important because what we see may cause us to question or doubt what God has said is true and certain. It seemed to be what was happening for Israel as they saw suffering and oppression and affliction, but God said He was still with them and He was going to bring them back. They saw it and they felt abandoned, forsaken and forgotten. But was it true? Not at all. And so here it's helpful to remember one of the core foundations, I understand, of modern psychology. You may be aware, feelings aren't facts. It's a fairly simple statement, but sometimes our emotions, our feelings, what wells up inside us, it's not actually true. Israel felt abandoned, divorced, sold, and forgotten. But God said it is not true. God questions this. It challenges their claim and their accusation. You see, God is with them. He has not and will not forget or abandon or forsake His people. And So in chapter 15 verse 1, there is no certificate of divorce. Nor does God have any creditors. He's not in debt to anyone. There's no one He needs to pay off. There's no one He could sell His people to. And so, if the facts don't align with what they're feeling, what is the explanation? Well, God says, God says His people have gone through this suffering in chapter 50 and verse 1 because of their iniquities and transgressions. I take it the language in verse 1 there about them being sold and sent away is kind of an ironic reversal of the accusation they've made against God. You see, when God turns up to rescue His people, there's no new man on the scene. They haven't divorced and found another. When God comes to bring His people back, He doesn't have to negotiate with someone who's bought His people. They've always been His. They've always been His bride and He comes to bring them home just as He promised. You see, God is the one who is faithful to His people. But if the problem at the heart of all of this was their sin and their failure to listen to and obey God, it wasn't the power of the Babylonians or the threat of the Assyrians. Now if the problem was them and their obedience, you'd expect that the salvation or the solution must revolve around forgiveness as well. Not war, not strong-arming the nations into submission. Though, don't think that God is taking the easy way out. The sword would be much easier than dealing with sin. And God is not weak or unable to show His power over the nations. Verses 24 to 26, in pretty striking and confronting terms, proclaim that God is able to fulfill this promise because no power, no tyrant, no nation, no king, that no human being, uh, no political power, no spiritual power has got anything on God. No one can oppose or thwart His plans. And so, as God gathers His people from all the world, the whole world, all flesh, will know that God is the saviour of His people. He is the mighty one. And so, maybe this should give us cause to pause before we jump to our own conclusions about what God is or isn't doing in the world because of what we see. We may feel alone, abandoned, neglected, ignored, cut off. But before we accuse God, Perhaps we should do him the justice of opening his word and seeing what he's promised to us and trusting and living by faith, knowing that God fulfills them. So, God's made a great promise for his people here. He's going to send his servant to come and save them and the world. And while it seems outrageous, God doubles down on that. He says, Israel have experienced judgment, not abandonment. They're still his precious bride and people. And God will restore them. And as they see the people coming back, they will know it is true. The servant works for the glory of God. But how do you expect God to fulfill this promise? Well, here's another. And I'm sorry, it's the last, only two today. How do you expect God to fulfill this promise of salvation through His servant? 30 seconds, go. All right, you don't need that much time. Uh, hands up if you said Jesus. Yeah, good for your hands. Okay, but how? We all expect the answer is Jesus. He's God's servant who speaks these powerful words from God, bringing salvation to God's people. He first comes to Israel, and then that salvation overflows the whole world. And as a covenant given to the world, it's interesting. Jesus says, oh, next heading, Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want a relationship with God, it comes through the person of Jesus. Well, you may be familiar in Luke 22, the night before Jesus died, he was celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And Jesus took bread, and when he would given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You see, Jesus' body, His person as the servant, is the new covenant, the new way of coming to God and relating to Him. You see, His death and resurrection is God's great way of opening salvation, of dealing with sin, uh, of bringing up a profound relationship like children to a father, that we can have peace with God. And now that's all true. But the surprising part for me, and maybe for you, we'll find out, is where Isaiah 49 is actually picked up and quoted in the New Testament. Uh, We're going to flip over to Acts 13. I have a bookmark. It'll take you longer there. But Acts 13, flip over there. Uh, We pick up the action with Paul and Barnabas. They're in Antioch. Uh, We're looking particularly at the second half of the chapter. And then they're proclaiming the good news of forgiveness in life in Jesus. Uh, So from verse 16... Uh, Paul's explaining how God has kept His promises to many people and over hundreds of years through Jesus. You see, Jesus is the promised offspring of Abraham. He's the promised king of David's line. But the rulers of Israel didn't recognize Him in verse 27, just as Isaiah foretold. And so they put Jesus to death. But God did what He promised in the Scriptures. He raised Jesus to life again. And so down in verse 38, Paul concludes... Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which he could not be freed by the law of Moses. There's that freedom. There's that deliverance. There's the forgiveness of sins that we hoped the servant of God could bring. Paul says it's made possible it's been achieved through Jesus. But not just for Israel if you look down to verse 44 when Paul and Barnabas turn up the following saturday to teach in the synagogue again the whole town's turned up they want to hear this news and the Jews get jealous and they start contradicting Paul and so look at what Paul says in verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life behold, we turn to the Gentiles." That's the non-Jews, that's the nations, It's everyone else. And why? What's the justification? Well, for the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. You recognize where that line comes from, don't you? It's Isaiah 49 and verse 6. It's what God said about the servant. How is the work of the servant being fulfilled? How is the forgiveness going to the nations? Well, the work of God's servant is being fulfilled through the apostles preaching the good news about Jesus to anyone who is willing to hear it. Now that's a striking twist. And I want to suggest it goes further still. As Paul and Barnabas proclaim the greatness of the Lord Jesus, it seems that God's servant was called Israel because He came to do what Israel was supposed to be and do. And as He saves Israel and gathers people to Himself, I guess through relationship with the servant, we are now enabled to do that work that God's people have always been supposed to do. To glorify God and to seek to proclaim the goodness of God to the rebellious world. And so if you're a Christian, through faith in Jesus Christ, you should consider yourself God's servant, as Christ is. Uh, We see this in in 1 Peter 2 and verse 16. uh, Peter writes, live as people who are free. That's what the servants achieve for us. We are set free, but we don't use our freedom as a cover-up for evil but we live as servants of God. And what's one of the things those servants of God do? Well, just a few verses earlier in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, uh, really picking up the language of Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, what God said to His rescued people as He brought them out of slavery in Egypt uh, to be His people. And what were they to do? Well, Paul says, Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priest a holy nation of people for His own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And what is these great excellencies of God? What well, is what God has done for us through Jesus Christ to save us? That's what Paul and Barnabas proclaimed. It's the message of salvation that goes to the nations. This is the work of the servant to reconcile God's world to himself. And so as Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2, he says since Jesus has come as God's servant, now is the time of now is the favorable time, now is the day of salvation. Friends, this is great news for us. At times God can feel distant. We can feel alone or isolated cut off from each other or from God himself. But know that God is at work. He has kept his promises And so we can be certain of His salvation. If you haven't yet received God's forgiveness, now is the day to receive it. And if you have received it, see that you're actually bound up with Jesus to do the work of the servant. To glorify God and proclaim the reconciliation, the forgiveness that the world needs to hear. And the expectation is that God will do His work through us. As he promised and has been faithful to friends no matter what you're feeling in the ups and downs let's keep turning back to God's word and his promises to know that he is with us and even working through us to do his great work because today is a favorable time today is the day of salvation let's pray Heavenly Father thank you so much that you are faithful to your promises uh, that You promised to send Your servant to bring hope for you, not only Your people, but the whole world. Father, thank You that through Jesus' death and resurrection, that offer of forgiveness is extended to Israel and to all of us. We thank You that now is the day when that salvation is being received and extended. Father, may we all receive Your offer of forgiveness, and may we join in the work as Your servants to proclaim Your excellencies to the whole world, that You may be glorified and many may be saved. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.
1: Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.